Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know much better than I do that if you do not break through in this message today, that this is going to be a disaster. And I just thank you so much that I can hide behind the the power of the cross. Because if it wasn't for the cross, not only would I not be able to stand up here today and preach your word, but I wouldn't even be able to look myself in the mirror. And I thank you for your forgiveness. And I thank you for the power of the resurrection that infuses your presence of the new life of Christ in me as the hope of glory, which is allowing you to preach in me and through me today. Thank you for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The greatest privilege of my life has been to pastor the local church. God has blessed me with uh, the opportunity to serve as full-time pastor in four churches, uh, Parkview Baptist down in Moorhead City, uh, Fellowship in the Pass in California, uh, Beaumont, California, uh, Bent Creek Baptist Church in Asheville, and then we planted New Life Community Church in 1997, uh, where I'm still a member and serve as an elder and on the mission team there, even though I'm working with the state convention. And I've had the opportunity to pastor, do an interim pastor at Woodland Hills Church in Asheville and now at Antioch Baptist in Barnardsville. This has been the greatest privilege of my life. Um, the pastorate has brought me my greatest joys in life. And it has also brought me my greatest heartbreak. Uh, most of the heartbreaks have come through tragedies of having to do funerals one for a little three-year-old girl who was run over by a homicidal maniac down in Conyers, Georgia. Another by a three-year-old girl that I had to do a funeral for whose father was speeding away from a wreck because he didn't have his license and she was in the back seat. And as he was flying through downtown Asheville, he missed a curve and sailed off of a 150-foot cliff and landed in the parking lot um, of the public works facility in Asheville, and he got a scratch behind his ear, but his three-year-old daughter was killed. Tracy Summers, 15 years old, I looked out the back door of my office uh, when I was in California, and I noticed um, fire trucks and EMS and helicopter coming in, and as I was staring at that, I got a call from Tracy's mother, uh, Chloe Jean, who was a member of our church, screaming at the top of her lungs, Tracy had been in a wreck, and this, their car she was in after school, the guy was driving 70 miles an hour down a road, and his, uh, the wheel broke off of the axle, and the car went off the road, airborne, slammed into a bank, and Tracy was, her back was broken, and she was paralyzed uh, for the rest of her life. Um, those kind of things really shake you up. Had to do a funeral for two teenagers who got run over by a train because their car, they were trying to get across a track and they got stuck on the track. Um, and then um, a man who was a member of our church had been my elementary, my daughter's elementary school teacher 
stuck a shotgun in his mouth and killed himself. Those funerals were hard ones. Those are hard times. But then there's great joys, too. The joys of celebrating all of the great um, experiences and, and milestones of people's lives. Uh, being able to see newborn babies come into the world, to do weddings. I, I, I have, I've performed over 200 weddings, and I never perform a wedding that I don't get choked up when I see that bride come, come through the back door. That is just an awesome experience for me. And um, being able to celebrate the great joys of people's lives, one of my greatest joy. We, we labored for seven and a half years planting New Life Community Church. And we met in so many different places. Our motto was, if you can find us, you can worship with us. But we finally bought some land and... And, and we built our first building, and it took a long time, seven and a half years. But when we opened up our first building and our, our building and, and had our first worship service, 650 people came to that opening worship service. And I just stood there just in awe and marvel of what God, God had done. And so, great joys. Fruitland has now been training pastors since 1899. 120 years. Right now, one out of every five pastors in Southern Baptist churches in North Carolina are being pastored by graduates from Fruitland. Um, 1970, late 70s, Fruitland was in great danger of being taken over and led down a very slippery slope of liberalism. And we all have a great debt to J.D. Grant because in great courage, he stood up at the state convention and, and made a motion that we keep the president that we had, who was a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching uh, uh, president, instead of giving it over to someone who would have led this school in a very great, different direction. Thank you, J.D., for your courage for protecting us. But with all the work we do to train pastors, you know, I think it's good every now and then to rethink just what is the job description of a pastor? What is a pastor supposed to do? Now, I have shared before that the job of the pastor is to visit the sick, to bury the dead, and to marry the crazy. That our job is to hatch them, match them, and dispatch them. <laughs> When I graduated from Southwestern Seminary, I was 27 years old, never been on staff of a church before, went in view of a call to Parkview Baptist down in Moorhead City, a 400-member church. I was way out of my league and way out of my comfort zone. My wife and I walked up into the backyard of a, of the, uh, a barbecue that, that the search committee and their spouses and the deacons and their wives were all standing there waiting for us to come up to talk to us about being their pastor. And I think Ann and I were at least 10 to 15 years younger than anyone else there. And they looked at us like, who are these kids that have come up into this backyard? And I could see the concern on their eyes, in their eyes. Uh, but in the course of our meeting that night, um, they asked me, what do you think God is calling you to do as a pastor? And gratefully, I had an answer for them that was a biblical answer that I had prepared. 
And I really believe that that, I saw the relief in their eyes because they thought, well, at least he knows what he's doing. At least he knows what he's supposed to do. And it came from a passage of Scripture that I want to share with you today. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. This is kind of a backdoor job description because it's really a rebuke for shepherds that were not doing their job. But in the rebuke, he laid out what they should have been doing that they weren't doing. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So the shepherds of Israel were not fulfilling their calling and they were rebuked by Ezekiel. Out of their failure, we actually see four responsibilities that they should have been doing that they weren't doing. And here we see four responsibilities that make up the job description of a pastor. The first one, look at verse 2 again. He says, Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So here we see the first responsibility of a pastor is a ministry of teaching and preaching. It is the greatest privilege of my life to stand behind a sacred desk and speak the very oracles of God. This is an awesome thing. Every time I come into the pulpit, I come into it with fear and trembling. And, and, and yet, what we see is that in reality, when you really come down to it, there's some really, really good, highly skilled preachers, and there are some preachers that cannot preach themselves out of a wet, wet paper bag. They're just not skilled preachers, and everybody knows it, except for maybe them. That's just reality. You know, you go to the, you preach your sermon, and you run to the end of the the, the, the auditorium and you wait for everyone to come out and, and it's always fun because they shake your hand and they tell you what a wonderful sermon you just preached. Except for a few people. One man came up to the pastor and he said, if I'd known you were going to be this good today, I'd have brought my neighbor with me. <laughs> Another man walked up and he said, Pastor, did you know that there are 244 panes in the stained glass windows in this room? And there are 488 tiles in the ceiling. We know what he was doing while the pastor was preaching. It is appalling to see how pastors massacre the Word of God every week by unknowingly preaching false gospels. Now, we have great training here in how to preach. And I'm going to defer to Dr. Horton and to Steve Blanton in the training that they're giving you in how to preach, how to put together a sermon. But I just want to share a couple of thoughts that have been burning in me for a while, and and that is 
I have come back to a, just a deep personal conviction that I need to preach the gospel. That I need to preach gospel-centered sermons. Now that's not the way I was trained even at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. My preaching class, we were taught the inductive method of observation, interpretation, and application. Observation is you observe, you're answering the question, what does it say? Who, what, when, where, how, and why? Interpretation is what does it mean? What is the central idea of this text? What is the meaning of it? And then application is what does God want us to do about it? What is the application, the practical application? Well, if that's the end of your sermon, if practical application and what I'm supposed to do is the end of my sermon, then I'm going to be missing out on something very, very important. Because I don't believe the end result of preaching should be what we should do. The end result of preaching, we should, we should land at the foot of the cross. We should land not with what we should be doing, but what Jesus has already done for us. Through the power of the cross and the power of reconciliation and restoration that comes through what Jesus has done for us. And then the power of the resurrection, not what I'm supposed to do, but what through the indwelling presence of the power of the Holy Spirit, does Jesus want to do in me and through me through the power of the resurrection? That should be the end part of a sermon. And so I think that instead of asking the three questions, just what does it say, what does it mean, what should I do about it, we should be asking questions that come from the Word of God. You see, we don't get to do with the Word of God whatever we feel like doing with it. The Bible tells us what it wants us to do with it. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if you look at that clearly, it follows the Gospel perfectly. The gospel is, the first part of the gospel is creation. What are the creative purposes and principles of how to live God's life God's way in this passage of scripture that I'm studying? And what does this say? It says the scripture is profitable for teaching. Teaching us what? How to live life God's way. But then the second part of the gospel is separation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're independent from God. And so we need... We need to come to Him in brokenness, confession, and repentance. And what does this passage say in 2 Timothy 3? The second thing that it's good for, the Scripture's good for and profitable for is reproof. So the second question, after I've answered the question of what does this passage teach us about how to live God's way, the second question is how have I fallen short of this? And how do I need to come back to God in brokenness and confession and repentance? Then the third step in this 2 Timothy 3.16 is correction. Reproof and then correction. He doesn't reprove us to leave us there. He reproves us to correct us. Now friends, we can't get corrected apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you get correction is you come to, to the foot of the cross begging Him for His mercy and grace and the forgiveness that flows through the blood of Jesus. That's how we get corrected. We get restored. We get reconciled. By coming back to the cross. And then the last part he says is training in righteousness. 
training in righteousness. Not just doing what I'm supposed to do, but it's in the context of the righteousness of Christ that I can do what I'm supposed to do after I've been corrected and restored and reconciled. That's the power of the resurrection. And in the power of the resurrection, I have a new life that has been infused into me. And that new life that has been infused into me is the presence of the Spirit of God. And in that presence, I can be filled with the Spirit. And then when I understand what the Scripture is telling me what to do, I can say I cannot do this in my own strength, but I can trust you to live your life in and through me, and you can give me the power to do what I need to do now. That's gospel preaching. And I commend it to you to answer those four questions each time you look at the Scriptures and to let it give you guidance and direction in being a gospel-centered preacher. Don't let your sermon end up with what you're supposed to do. Let it end up with what Jesus has done and what the Holy Spirit can do in you and through you. Now, verse 4, he says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. What we see here is a ministry of healing. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason, we don't seem to emphasize healing as much in our Baptist churches as other groups do. That's a problem. Because every person who comes to us comes to us in great brokenness. There's constantly breakdown in our lives physically and and emotionally and mentally and spiritually. There's a constant need for healing. And here we are banging away up here on the pulpit telling people what they ought to be doing and what we're doing. That's like asking a man who has a broken leg to run a marathon. He can't do it because he's, he has infirmities. He's broken. He's, he, he needs healing first. We need to give attention to the healing. You know, when you look at... I just did a study of, of the ministry of Jesus. Just read the Gospels and just say, okay, what did Jesus do? Wouldn't it be a good idea for me to just carry out my ministry the way Jesus did? Well, if you go through the Gospels, you see that when Jesus told the disciples to follow me, I mean, he meant follow me, and he turned around and started walking, and they either followed him or they didn't. Because he knew where he was going. And what did he do? He did two things for three and a half years. Preach and heal, preach and heal, preach and heal. He went among the villages preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness including casting out demons which in his deliverance ministry that was a form of healing the inner man. The the, the need for inner healing and spiritual uh, warfare healing that was needed. But he did two things, preach and heal. If he gave that much attention to healing how can we do any less? Jesus touched some. He spoke and it was done. He used spit. He plugged one man's ears with his fingers. He put clay in one man's eyes. For blind men, He touched one blind man once. He touched another blind man twice. He put mud in the eye of another blind man. And you know, they've been making jokes for years about that, saying if if it had been today, we'd have put together three different denominations over that. The one-touch crowd, the two-touch crowd, and the the mud-in-the-eye crowd. Bottom line is, he healed. Now, I want to just look at two kinds of healing for a moment that's needed. First of all is physical healing. How do we as pastors approach the need for physical healing in our churches? 
We think just because we have great medical facilities today that we can bypass this. No, no. We need to be praying because no matter what the doctors do, God is the one that ultimately places within the human body the ability to be healed. And the way we pray for healing depends upon the kind of sickness they have. You see, there's three kinds of sickness that are described in the Bible. The first one is a sickness unto death. Isaiah 38, 1, he says, In those days of Hezekiah became sick, and he was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now, isn't that a wonderful bedside manner? He called the, called the pastor in to pray for you, and he said, I'm sorry, man, you're going to die. Now, in the story itself, we see that this got Hezekiah's attention so much that he turned his face to the wall and he grieved and he prayed and he cried out to God for mercy. God gave him a little bit more time, but ultimately he did die, as all of us do. We need to be reminded our mortality rate is 100%. All of us are going to die unless Jesus comes before we die. And so there's a time when it's time for somebody to die. And there's nothing at all wrong if there's a discernment about that and the person suffered for many, many, many years and they're old and they're, they want to go on and be with the Lord to just give them that permission. Give them that blessing. Give them that, you know, we've got to be careful about that because you never know what God wants to do. But, but there's a time, there's a sickness unto death. And that's a wonderful sickness because if you're a Christian, as soon as you step onto the other side, you get the best healing anyone can get because you get a new body. He's not going to just patch up the old one. You're going to get a new glorified body ultimately. And that's the best kind of healing anyone can receive. Then there is a sickness unto chastisement. James 5.14 If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, we take this seriously at our church. People come to us, our elders anoint them with oil and they pray over them. But every time we do this, we take a step back and we say, now, what is, what is God doing in your life through this right now? What are you sensing God is saying to you? Is there anything you think God wants to change about your life? And that's important. I baptized a man Sunday morning I've been chasing for 10 years. He owns three restaurants downtown Asheville. He's a highly successful businessman. And he accepted the Lord a number of years ago. I shared the gospel with him. He prayed to receive Christ. But then he didn't follow through. And two weeks ago he had a heart attack. And that got his attention. And I knew it was going to get his attention because he almost died. He has four little boys. Uh, just, it really shook him up. So I went over to his house to visit him. And all I said was, hey, I said, hey, what do you think God's trying to say to you right now? And he said, oh, man, he's, he's, caught, he's showing me I need to rethink my purpose in life. And I said, well, what is your purpose now? He said, well, I want to keep serving the community, but I've got to give more attention to my wife and my children. And I said, what about your relationship with God? He said, yeah, that needs to be the highest purpose that I have. I said, listen, you know, Jesus said, if you, uh, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? 
You've already gained the whole world. You're a successful businessman. You've made all this money. You've got this big, beautiful house. But if you lose your soul, what is that going to profit you? Jesus, your spiritual life needs to be the hub. He said, you're exactly right. I want to commit to follow Jesus. And I said, what is the first thing you need to do then? He said, I need to be baptized. And I knew that was what he needed to do, but I wanted him to say it. And that's what God showed him. And we baptized him Sunday morning. It was a glorious time. But we had to look at his, this sickness unto chastisement. God was wanting to get his attention. And then there's a last way. There's a lot, another kind of sickness. And it's a sickness under the glory of God. John eleven four. 4, when Jesus heard about Lazarus, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Ultimately, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, there's two ways that God can be glorified through a physical illness when we're praying for people. First one is an instant, instantaneous miracle. And I feel sorry for you if you don't believe God still heals and God doesn't do instantaneous miracles because I know He does. He has done it for me several times. And I don't say the word miracle easily. But I was going cross-eyed. I was getting ready to have surgery to, to, to straighten my eyes out. And I went out on a softball field and I saw two balls coming down at me catching flies out in the outfield. And I knew I couldn't play that way. And so I left the field and went around in Sand Hill Venable School and I sat down on the front steps and I put my hands in my head, uh, my, my head in my hands and I said, God, I haven't even asked you to heal me. I don't know what you want to do, but I'd just like to ask you to heal me right now. And friends, I'm telling you, I looked up, I could see perfectly. And this double vision had been going on for months, getting ready to have surgery. And I thought, well, that's cool. Maybe he'll, you know, heal me enough to play this softball game. I went out and played the game perfectly. A week went by, two weeks went by, no more double vision. I went to see the doctor, and he looked at me, and I didn't say a word. He just got puzzled, looked, and he said, something's happened. Your eyes have straightened out all on their own. I said, nope. I said, God healed me. And he said, well, then just keep on praying. You don't need me anymore. Instant miracles. God can do it. He does it. But then there's a second kind of way he can be glorified, and that's leaving you in that illness a little bit longer, just like Paul's thorn in the flesh. And what did Paul say in his thorn in the flesh? As Paul looked and dealt with his thorn in the flesh, he said, I prayed three times for God to take it away. Now, that's a good in indication. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he would, that it would leave me. But then he said to me, My grace is sufficient for, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's what I call plan B. And I do the same thing Paul did. When somebody's sick, I pray for God to heal them. And I'll pray three seasons like Paul did if that's what it takes. But then, if it doesn't happen, we can move to plan B. And it's not really plan B. It's God's plan A, but it's just the second part of the plan. And that is that He's going to leave me in it so that in my weakness, His strength will be perfected. And that's another kind of healing. So I'm not on the hook to make people well. It's God's deal. And I just walk and watch Jesus for what He's doing. But let's be engaged in this healing ministry.
And then there's a second kind of healing that's needed, and it's an inner healing from the bondages of the past. Everybody who comes to us comes with a past. All of us are products of our past. You can't be the product of anything else. You can't be the product of your present or your future because you're not there yet. But everybody brings all their baggage in with them when they come to Jesus. There's all kinds of inner healing that needs to take place. Now listen carefully. We've got some problems today about how to deal with spiritual warfare. Because some people and some groups see it as a power encounter, like the exorcist. But the Scripture says that it is not a power encounter, it's a truth encounter. Because behind everything Satan does, there's a lie. And all we have to do to do good spiritual warfare is to expose the lie. Is it temptation? Is it condemnation? Is it accusation? Is it deception? You know when you're being tempted. You know when you're being condemned. You know when you're being accused. But you don't know when you're being deceived. So let's find out what the lie is. Expose it for what it is. Then renounce it. Reject it. Oppose it. And then replace it with the truth of your identity in Christ and who you are in Christ. Now there's a lot of ministries that are doing that approach now today to spiritual warfare. Grab one of them and use it in your church. I would recommend to you Freedom in Christ Ministries. Neil Anderson's books, Victory Over the Darkness, Bondage Breaker. Those are, those are the, the, the best, I think, in this approach of a truth approach uh, to spiritual warfare. Thirdly, a ministry of evangelism and missions. He says, verse 4, the lost you have not sought. I think one of the worst kept secrets in the church today is the number of pastors who rarely share the gospel with anyone. A pastor who does not model personal evangelism and lead out in some way in making sure that his members are equipped in an aggressive evangelism outreach ministry, a pastor like that is guilty of ministerial malpractice. How many pastors have seen the church grow just enough to have a building and to pay their salary and then they sequester themselves in a church office and spend all their time doing church stuff while neglecting an outreach ministry to the lostness of their community? I believe this is the number one reason why 85% of our churches are plateaued or declining because the pastors are not modeling personal evangelism for their congregations. And if the pastor's not going to at least model it, then there's no chance on earth their, their church members are going to do it. Every pastor needs the confidence and power that the gospel will change lives and he needs to be modeling it. You know, Timothy wasn't an evangelist, but Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist so that you can at least model it for your congregation. A pastor cannot outsource the responsibility to model personal evangelism. Just can't do it. The last one is a ministry of leadership. Verse 4, he says, And with force and harshness you have ruled them. They were bad leaders. Pastors are called to confidently lead the flock of God to fulfill God's mission for the church which is to reach up by loving God through worship and prayer, which is to reach out by loving your neighbor and evangelism and missions, and which is to reach in by loving ourselves in discipleship and nurture. We have to lead in that. Now some may think they're leaders, but they're not good leaders. John Maxwell, the guru of leadership, 
He said, He who thinketh he leadeth, but hath no one following, is only taking a walk. Are you really a good leader? Do you have confidence of where God wants you to go and lead in that? Do you have the character that is fulfilled in all the scripture biblical qualifications for a pastor? Do you have the context of understanding your congregation, your community? Do you have the capacity to be able to recruit, raise up, train, and delegate leaders and let them lead and let them go and let them lead and, and, and watch them uh, become great leaders themselves? And do you have the competence of continuing to skill to grow in your skill development? And you know, I think training leaders and releasing leaders in your church doesn't have to be complicated. It can really be a very simple process. Just apprenticeship. All you have to do, you can double your leaders every year in your church if you just do one thing. Let each leader recruit a co-leader to work with them. And let them work with them for a year. And then you enter into apprenticeship. You do it. You do it while they're watching. They do it while you're watching. And they do it. And you've got a leader. That's the way heart surgeons are trained. That's the way airline pilots are trained. You do it. You do it while they're watching. They do it while you're watching. They do it. Just get every leader to recruit a co-leader to work with them. And in a year, they can take off their own responsibilities. And you're always multiplying your leadership. So that's the job of a pastor. Ministry of teaching, ministry of healing, ministry of evangelism and outreach, and ministry of leadership. May God give you the grace through the power of the cross, power of the resurrection, to be and do what he's calling you to do. Father, thank you for making it clear what you call pastors and leaders to do. And we thank you that you've not called us to do it in our own strength, but we can do it through the forgiveness and restoration that comes from the cross and through the presence and power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. In your name, amen.